The following message was recorded at Fountain of Life Fellowship in Fountain Valley, California. For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com. We're continuing our series through the Gospel of Mark. As I'm sure you noticed as we heard the text, there are some strange, surprising, even hard-to-believe things in our passage this morning. First of all, you saw at the end, there's a, there's a report of just a slew of miracles. Mark uh, summarizes the end of Jesus' time in a certain region, and I guess we could paraphrase it like this. He healed everybody, like everybody. Even people who would just touch his clothes, healed. He's healing people like it's going out of style, like it's just, it's lavish. It's amazing. It's surprising, maybe hard to believe. But what really grabs our attention, right, is in the story beforehand, is the claim that Jesus walked on top of a windy lake like you and I walk on the sidewalk. That's incredible. That's mind-blowing. I don't have, what's the words for, for something like that? And you know, it's particularly strange. Here, here's why I say that. Number one, it obviously goes radically beyond the laws of nature. I don't know if you've ever been swimming before, but that's not how it works usually. <laughs> and if you thought the high dive was scary before, you know, now it's deadly. No, it's, it's actually, it's, that's not how it works. It's actually a good thing most of the time, right? But that's how it's worked this time. That's their claim. He walked on the water. Not only that, a, a second reason is strange. It, go, it goes beyond the lo- normal laws of nature. It's also a mir- miracle of an entirely different sort. So, According to the gospel accounts, nearly all of Jesus' miracles are miracles of restoration. Restoration. So what does he do with the paralytic man? He makes him walk. He restores him to what he's supposed to be, what he's designed to be. What does he do with the blind man? He makes him see. He restores his eyes to what they're supposed to be. And by contrast, his miracles never make anybody superhuman. Like the paralytic didn't start jumping over buildings. The the blind man didn't start having x-ray vision, right? His miracles are usually restorative. They restore that which is broken. But walking on water, that's, that's way past restorative. It's like a whole different category. What are we supposed to do with this, with a claim of a miracle like this? I'll mention a guy named Albert Schweitzer. Anybody ever heard that name? To be a little bit of a nerd. Um, He was a notable theologian and scholar of the 1900s, and he wrote a book called The Quest for the Historical Jesus. Everybody should go, hmm, go ahead, just hmm. The Quest for the Historical Jesus. I mean, you might think, face value, you want to see the Jesus of history? Read the Gospels. They're the earliest documents about Jesus. But no, Schweitzer, he was after something else. Here's his idea. His idea was basically rational people simply can't believe everything we see in the gospel accounts, like walking on water. Because that's just, that can't happen, right? It's an assumption. That that can't happen. So the, the idea was, let's try to discover what really happened based on what our committee finds to be realistic. And here's how He explained the miracle of Jesus walking on water. Are you ready? Here are the two options. Number one, 
It was an optical illusion caused by Jesus walking on the shore. And number two, well, it was Jesus, it really, it was Jesus walking on a sandbar in the middle of the lake, and the disciples were scared, and it was night. Either way, what's what Schweitzer saying? The mer- there's not a miracle. That's what he's saying. Because, from his assumption, I would guess miracles like that are just, they're not even feasible. They're not possible. Can't be true. Well, I don't know how you feel about this, but conclusions like the ones he's making, they have implications, right? They have implications. So, so say he was right. They, it has implications for how we view the disciples, doesn't it? Because what did Mark write? Jesus walked on the water. That's what he wrote. What did Matthew write? Jesus walked on the water. And what did John write? Jesus walked on the water. That's what they wrote. So I guess we have two choices. They're either idiots or they're liars. But, he, but here's the thing. If we, oh, okay, let's consider that option. But, you know, that can be just as hard to believe as well. For instance, many of these disciples are career fishermen. This lake is where they live. This is where they work. They know the lake. The, the lake is their life. It's a little bit hard to believe that a professional fisherman is going to be terrified by a man walking on the shore of the lake he always works at. It's a little hard to believe that they won't know where that gigantic sandbar is that you could walk on in the lake. And they're familiar with these things. Moreover, these men were in the boat, or for Mark, he's getting his account from Peter, who was in the boat. They just can't be that, they can't be that foolish. That would never, that would never fly. And wouldn't one of them be like, you know, two of them are like, it's a ghost. And the other one would be like, remember the sandbar? Should we go pick him up? Oh, yeah. You need some sleep, man. You're right, something like that. It's hard to believe that they're, they're quite that foolish. It's also hard to believe that they were all lying and they held that lie together. So just taken as a whole, their testimony about Jesus stayed unified, stayed the same, and they suffered and died for it. They would have known whether or not they were lying. And they held together and suffered and died for it, their claims about Jesus it's hard to believe that they're liars. And so all of a sudden you realize, you know what? Okay, Schweitzer's idea doesn't just have, it has implication for how we view the disciples. And, and that's his, his implication that they're idiots or they're liars. That's as hard to believe as the miracle is. But it does, he doesn't just have implications for how we view the disciples. He has implications for how we view Jesus. And I would bet this is actually the point. Because if Jesus is just an ancient sage who was chilling on a sandbar in the middle of the night and inspired some exaggerated stories, he might be interesting. Maybe you can learn something from him. But here's the big question. Do you need to surrender your life to him? No. No, you don't. And at that point, Jesus has been domesticated, hasn't he? I think that's the theme of our passage today, domesticated. What's it mean to domesticate something? 
kind of bring it home, control it, make it cute. Um, it fits your agenda now. It's kind of in uh, under your under your power now, in a way. He's domesticated, but he's under our our critique. And anyway, uh, who who controls our lives in it? In a scenario like that, well, not him. I do. But on the other hand, on the other hand, say Jesus really could and really did walk on water like this for a specific reason. Well, that would mean something else entirely, wouldn't it, for who he is and what it means to respond to him. So I think that's what we see in our passage today. It's not just 19th century theological liberals that want to domesticate Jesus. It's all of us. Even his disciples at first. And the real Jesus, as we will see very clearly, he will not be domesticated. Four scenes for us as we take in this passage, four points. Number one, we're going to see the interruption. Number two, the desperation. Number three, the revelation. Number four, the restoration. Interruption, desperation, revelation, restoration. First of all, the interruption. We have to remember some background. If you were here last week, do you remember, do you remember what story we're coming off of? Thousands and thousands of people have followed Jesus out to this wilderness setting where he's preaching to them. You got to the end of the day, and the disciples say, we need to break this party up. These people have nothing to eat. There's nothing to eat here. Jesus says, you feed them. The disciples, as, usually, or as usual, are incredulous at what Jesus says to them. <laughs> what? You feed them. I can't. What do you have? couple fish, couple pieces of bread. Jesus says, I can work with that. And then, right, remember, thousands, thousands of people. He feeds them, feeds his people in the wilderness. 12 baskets left over. You can listen to the sermon on the internet if you want to see what we said with that. But here we are at the, in the aftermath of that, and you have, to, you have to start to imagine, what are the crowds like after that kind of a miracle. There's already suspicion, right? Who is Jesus? What are we supposed to do with this person? At least maybe a great prophet. And then he pulls off something like this. And you imagine the, I mean, what would it be like for you if you were in the crowd? Moreover, you've got this kind of messianic expectation, right? A king's gonna come. And you see Jesus pull off something like this. You can imagine the excitement, the surge, the momentum. You know, if we were teaching Jesus like a leadership class, you know, you might say to Jesus, okay, now's your time. Now's your time. You have thousands of people in your hand right now. Take it. Run with it. Make your difference. Make your difference. Let's go. Now is the time. And Jesus does the complete opposite of that the complete opposite of that. He interrupts everything. Look at Mark 6, 45. Immediately, he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side of the lake. I can't imagine, they, in context, they've already had a ridiculous day. They're exhausted. The crowds are massing to Jesus. And if you're a disciple, you're probably thinking, oh yeah, it's working. The movement's coming. And Jesus says, get in the boat and row. 
And maybe if you're a disciple, you're saying, it's night. The windstorm is coming. Can you feel it? And Jesus, what does he do? He tells you, to do, what does he tell you to do? Get in the boat and row. He sends them away immediately. And it's like the, the emphasis here is quick, get out of here. It's like, he's, it's like he's kicking them in the pants on the way out. Go, go now. Then he dismisses the crowd. I don't know how he did that with thousands of people, but in the strength of his own authority, he does this sometimes. We're done, and it was done. But the, everything's dissipated. The momentum's gone. He shut it all down. And then finally, strangely, strangest of all, maybe, 46, where does he go now? He climbs up a mountain to pray. He went from being the attention and the passion of thousands and thousands of people to being all by himself on a hill at night praying. He's interrupted everything. So as, as readers, we have to go, why? What is going on? All of this is counterintuitive, isn't it? You wouldn't, you wouldn't expect any of this to occur. What are you doing? Well, Mark doesn't tell us in detail, but he gives us hints. Three major times in the Gospel of Mark, he mentions Jesus getting by himself to pray in the wilderness somehow. And those usually take place in a context of like a, a crisis or a choice regarding his ministry. There, there's something he has, there's a choice he needs to make that will define who he is and what he came to do. And so he, he gets away and he prays about it. Here's the biggest example I'll show you, Mark 14. 35, he's praying in the garden. Going a little farther, he fell on the ground and he prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. What is that? He's about to die on a cross. That's what the hour is. What's he praying? Is there a way where I can do this without taking the wrath of God on a cross? I can, from a human point of view, I can understand that prayer. Uh, look what he says, verse 36, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. What's his request? Remove this cup from me. The cup, that's, that's, the, that's the, the drink of God's wrath for the sake of sinners, is there another way? Is there a way out of me being the king who dies to save his people? And yet, what's the end of his prayer? Yet not what I will, but what? What you will. In, in his human nature, isn't there a desire not to suffer? Well, and you think then on this, on this moment in Mark then, you think of the excitement of the crowds. You think of a temptation there. You think he's, he's thinking about the nature of his mission, who he is, what he came to do. The Gospel of John tells us more detail about what Jesus is facing. Look at John 6, 15. This is John's account of the same story. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to what? Make him king. Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. 
And now you see with more clarity what the mindset of the crowds were. We are going to make you our king right now. Now, how many of you, you might be thinking, well, isn't that, isn't that what we're supposed to do? Jesus came, he's the king, right? And now we want him to be king. So what's the problem? It's a huge issue. At this time of day, the, the crowds expected and hoped for a political Messiah who would come as a warrior king. They wanted, they, they were ready to go march on, on the Roman headquarters. They were ready for a political revolt. They were ready for a, a this world king who would restore Israel to economic power. And you think about it, what's, what's every politician got to promise at the election, right? Economic blessing a restoration to glory, everything that you need, we'll, find, we'll get it done for you, right? And then what did, you, what did Jesus just done for these people? And they live in a, 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 a setting of far greater poverty than ours. What did he just done for them? Food. Look what Jesus says to them in John 6, 26. So later, after that evening where he feeds the crowds, they follow Jesus across the lake. They catch up with him the next day. This is what he says to them. Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but why? Because you ate your fill of the loaves. And so you see their motivation. They want a political king who will meet the societal needs of their day in the way they desire it. Subjecting Jesus to their politics, to their version of societal renewal, him working for them according to their agenda on what's best. And so you see why Jesus sent his disciples away. Mark 6.52 tells us they did not understand about the loaves. The disciples thought the same way the crowds did. They saw what the crowd saw, a political king. And what is Jesus' attitude towards folks who want to subject him to their own agenda for the circumstances of their life or society? He interrupts it all. He diffuses it all. He will have nothing to do with it. Why? It's another way to domesticate him. Make a Jesus who exists for our expectations to meet our needs, our felt needs right now in the way that we see fit. And it's just not big enough. It's not who he is and why he came. So we see the interruption. Jesus interrupts the effort to domesticate him. He will always, the real Jesus will always interrupt your effort to domesticate him. That takes us to the desperation. So he, he says to the disciples, start rowing. You know, and there's nothing to sober you up like rowing into a windstorm all night. In a very small way, I've had a couple of, this ex of these experiences. You're on a windy lake, and you're trying to row somewhere, and the wind won't let you go there. It's terrible. It, it's, 
It's just miserable. And, and my experience is a teeny little version of what they're going through. It's all night long. The windstorms are famous there. It's miserable. Uh, the waves are significant. They're probably being blown off course. We're told they're in the middle of the lake. It's taking all night. We're getting nowhere. Why did Jesus throw them into this? I mean, you could have predicted it was kind of going to happen. Why does he say, okay, it's time to go row against the wind all night long? I mean, if you're in the boat, aren't you frustrated that he asked you to row across the lake right now? <laughs> you're frustrated. You're exhausted and you're frustrated. And the longer you go, and you know, people are irritated and they're scared. What do we do when we're irritated and scared and we have to work together? Yeah, have you been there? I see your faces, okay? I, that's, what, that's what it's like, okay? We're irritable, we're nitpicky, we're panicking, we're saying we're at our worst. Go. That's what Jesus made them do. He takes them to desperation. And I wonder, I wonder if when we domesticate Jesus, he tends to remind us of the depths of our need for all that he is. You know, when we domesticate him, we want to use him for our purposes. He's serving us instead of us serving him. And maybe he adds some pain and some helplessness to our lives in that, in, in, in that sense, in that way. Why? The, the disciples are no longer thinking in this boat, man, I really hope he overthrows the Romans. You know what they're thinking? I really wish he was in this boat. Do you see how their sense of need changed? A little bit? They need more than a political king right now, don't they? We need more of the real Jesus far more than we think. I think that's the lesson here. You need more of the real Jesus far more than you think. And we have to be careful, but be prayerful, be thoughtful. There's probably something in your life where you're like, Jesus, if only you could fix this. And don't get me wrong, I'm not saying... Don't pray to Jesus about problems in your life. Do pray to him. I'm not saying he won't. Sometimes answer your prayers the, in the, according to how you asked someday, somehow. I mean, do. Seek him. Give it to him. But sometimes can't we get a little pigeonholed on assuming that Jesus' main thing is the same as our main thing, and then we're like, Jesus, your, your, your point is to fix this. And sometimes Jesus, Jesus will just blow it all up so you'll see, no, 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 no. I'm far bigger and I'm doing far greater things than, than just your little agenda. And, and Jesus is teaching us, you need all of me more desperately than you ever knew. Sometimes Jesus uses our desperation to show us some of how we need all that he is, not just what we want him to do for us in the moment. Interruption, desperation, revelation. Now we, now we get to the point. It's in the context of this desperation, Jesus is about to reveal something about himself to his disciples that they will never forget and they later tell the world about. Verse 48, about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea, just enjoy imagining that for a moment. Maybe you're on the, you're on the boat. You know, you are hating life. 
And you hate all your friends too, most likely, <laughs> probably. And you're rowing and you're not getting anywhere. And it's, Mark dates this uh, using the Roman way of seeing the day. He's got a Roman audience. So this is between 3 and 6 a.m., everybody's favorite part of the day, right? Nobody should have to be awake right now, much less rowing. And then you just happen to look off to the side and see him walking next to you. Yeah. And whatever would erupt out of you, that's what erupted out of them. And the word Mark uses is they were terrified. They're panicking. I mean, grown men in a boat, totally losing it. Totally losing it. Terrifying. Undone. But then we see this phrase at the end of verse 48. He meant to pass by them. Anybody notice that? Yes. <laughs> so um, I'll let you study that on the internet. I'm just going to move along. Now, what does it mean? I mean, one option is, is this like Jesus' first mistake in the Bible? He meant to pass by them. Evidently, the lake wasn't big enough and the night wasn't dark enough for him to figure that out. Or, or, is, it, or is it maybe like, well, it's his human nature and okay, right? Sometimes he doesn't know when he says in his human nature, he doesn't know when he's going to return. Or, you know, op option one, right? He didn't intend to be seen by them, but they saw him and freaked out, so he decided to come over and help. He's like, oh, this is getting bad. Is that what happened? I don't think that's it at all. There are several what theologians call theophanies in the Bible, theophany, and that's just a fancy word for where God sometimes comes real close and he reveals himself to people in a way that is both experienced and heard. He shows somebody, I'm God. Several of those in the Bible. I want you to listen to the language of a few of them. Just I, so, so first we'll start with just what a religious Jew of this day would have had in her mind from the scriptures about the majesty, the transcendence of God. And there's some echoes in the Mark passage that come, look at Job 9, Job 9. God alone who stretched out the heavens and what? Trampled the waves of the sea. That's symbolic in this language here, but what's he saying about God and his transcendence? It's the sea is like evil and chaos and God just walks across it. Verse nine, who made the bear and the Orion, the Pleiades, the chambers of the south. Those are constellations, right? Stars. Verse 10, who does great things beyond searching out Marvelous things beyond number. God is, he's, right, what are we saying? He's just overwhelming. We can't, we can't grasp him. We can't control him. Look at verse 11. Behold, he what? Passes by me. But I see him not. He moves on. I don't perceive him. Behold, he snatches away. Who can turn him back? Who will say to him, what are you doing? Do you get the emphasis of this passage? I mean, Job's dealing with a lot of hard questions, but he's saying there's a sense in which God is God and he's in control and he does what he does and he's God and not you. 
And you can't understand everything he's doing, and you certainly can't force him to do certain things or critique him for what he's doing. He's too great for that. But here's the big one, this theophany where God appears to Moses in the book of Exodus. Listen to this language. Exodus 33, 18. Moses said, please show me your glory. You hear that prayer? I want to I see and know more of you, God. That ought to be a core prayer of our hearts. Let me see more. Let me taste more. Verse 19, and God said, I will make all my goodness, what? Pass before you. And will, second part, what? Proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I show mercy. Verse 20, but God said, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there's a place by me where you shall stand on the rock, verse 22, and while my glory, what? Passes by, I'll put you in a cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. This is an ultimate This is an Old Testament idea when God reveals himself to someone. He proclaims who he is and gives an experience of himself as God. The phrase for that is, he passes by. And now you think, huh, what did Jesus mean to do? He meant to pass by them. Not, I meant to skedaddle around him and meet him on the other side. No, I meant to show them the glory of who I really am. That's what he's doing. So it's not, do you see, it's not Jesus passed by, but he got seen what he didn't mean to. The phrase is pointing out, he passed by, but they thought he was a ghost. And this is the disconnect that's guiding this entire passage. He's passing by and showing them, what's he showing them? He's God. And he's been showing them. That's what he showed them with the miracle of the the fish and the bread. He's God. But how did they take it when he showed them the first time? Oh, you're a political king. How did they take it when he began to show them the second time? Oh, you're a ghost. Do you see how slow they are to finally connect with who Jesus is? And remember in Exodus, God's, God passes by, he lets you taste and see a little bit of who he is, but then he declares his name. And look at what Jesus does. Immediately, he spoke to them and said, take heart, it is I. Or you could translate it like this, take heart, I am. That should ring a bell for you if you know your Bible a little bit. What what did God reveal his name to be in Exodus chapter 3, his name to his people, Exodus 3.14? God said to Moses, what's his name? I am that I am, Yahweh, I am, I always am. There's so many implications to this. It means he's eternal. He's he's sufficient. He has no needs. 
He's all powerful. He's all wise. He's always right. He's perfectly good. He's the source of life. And it also names all the other gods and everyone else who's ever been created. Because if God's name is I am, everybody else's name is I am not. (laughs) I'm not. He is. He is. And what has Jesus just done? He has passed by them and shown them his glory. And what is the glory? He's walking on a windy lake. Just like that Old Testament language of how God walks on the waters, just like that Old Testament language about how God passes by, he's showing his disciples Jesus is revealing himself as the Son of God. He's God and he shares the name of God. And here's the beautiful part, because he doesn't just say, I am. And he doesn't just say, wow, you guys are idiots. You know what he says? What does he say? First thing he says is, take heart. Don't you love that about Jesus as he reveals himself? As usual, you see both infinite majesty and power and also incredible humility and mercy. Because look at how these two things go together. I am. They're lost in their desperation. They're, under, they're, they're, they're seeing we're not in so many ways. We have needs. We, have, we're, we lose. We're broken. We are not. We are not. And then he comes and he says, I am. And then in that, it's... Take heart, be encouraged, because I'm here with you. Oh, that's so beautiful. I'm here with you. Hey, are the Romans still in power? Yeah. Are they still in this boat? 4.30 a.m., at least for a little bit. Is there still going to be trouble in this world that they're going to have to face? But something's happened. He's with them. He's with them. And when you see who Jesus is, and Matthew tells us this at this point, you know, Mark, Mark is showing you this like slow trans, uh, just slow growth and disciples finally getting it. And he's looking especially at the miracle of the feeding of the thousands and their hearts are hardened. They just don't see who Jesus is. But obviously the word is yet right? Yet, they're, they're slow, up and down, slow moving, but, but they will see, and, and Matthew actually tells you right here, they began to worship. Something's changing. Something's changing, because they're, they're finally seeing who he, who he is and that he's with them. So just backing up on, on the theme of the passage, I think, we like domesticated Jesuses sometimes, He fits our agenda, our need, our timeline, our requests. Jesus, why aren't you doing what I need you to do? Jesus is going to throw you in some desperation sometimes to see, so that you'll see you actually need all that he is. And you know, on one hand, all that he is is terrifying. He's the son of God. He's in control of nature. And does he write and ask you about what to do with the storms before he does it? Or does he just do it? in his power and wisdom. He does it. 
And in other ways, even more terrifying, he's the judge of the earth before whom you will stand and answer for how you've lived. Who can argue with him? Who can tell him he's wrong? And as the son of God, thinking about the introduction, right? If he's just a teacher, if he's just interesting, we could take some advice, leave him behind. If he's the son of God, listen, church, doesn't he have the right to ask you for anything? Anything? Doesn't he have the right to give or take whatever he wants at any time? Doesn't he have the right to ask you for everything? That is terrifying, and it calls for a deeper submission and a laying down of our pride and our agendas for how we write things up. And yet, when you come to the moment of need, is your domesticated Jesus really going to be able to save you? Is your domesticated Jesus really going to heal you? Is he going to take care of you? Listen, when you come to the real Jesus, the Son of God with repentance and faith, if you fear him, you'll never have to fear anything else again. Because he's strong, he's good, and he is with you. Take heart. Do not be afraid. And he got in the boat with him. I love that. Memorize that. Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them. That's revelation. He's revealing himself as the son of God. So what have we seen so far? Jesus interrupts it when we want to domesticate him. He maybe throws us into desperation so that we will see our need. And then the revelation, look, look at who he is. He's the son of God. Finally, the restoration. We've seen how 53 to 56, it's just full of miracles. Everybody came over. They bring their sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was, wherever he came, villages, cities, countryside. They laid the sick in the marketplaces, implored him that they might touch the fringe of his garment. As many as touched it were made well. I was having a discussion with somebody this week. We were talking about how believable miracles are or not, or like, how does this work? Could, I mean, I'm a cynic, right? If, if, if somebody came up to me this week and was like, oh, I saw a miracle last month, my first response on the inside is, I doubt it. I really don't think so. I'm, I'm a huge cynic on this. Uh, I've never seen anything like this, and, and neither have you. And so we wonder, how can I believe something I've never seen before? Well, even then, we back up a little bit, just rules of logic. Is something, can something only be true when you've seen it? Well, that's kind of a leap, isn't it? You believe in lots of things you've never seen. You have to. You're forced to. Of course, there are true things that you've never seen. You're not that big. You're not that amazing. Is there a God who created everything? If you believe that, well, then already you believe he's very strong and very wise. Does he have the right and ability to go over and above his normal, natural laws that he has set in motion to do what he wants when he wants to. Of course he does. Miracles are more than possible. They're even probable. If God wants to communicate something, and then we come to this, what what am I supposed to do with this story that all these people were just amazingly healed? I think we'd see there's two emphasis to this. Number one, In the Gospels, the miracles are never really ultimately about themselves. They prove the message. 
They prove the message. Even Jesus, the story of Jesus walking on the water, it is amazing, right? It's amazing to think about. But what does it do after that? I mean, the lake goes back to normal. He's not doing it again. What was the point of that miracle? It proved to the disciples that he's the son of God. It proved the message. So even all these people getting healed, they're all going to get sick and die again. I mean, we're, we're happy that they got 20 or 30 more years of, of um, a far more enjoyable life. That's wonderful. And yet what happened to each one of them? They got sick and died. What's the ultimate point of these miracles? Well, first, it proves the message. He's the son of God. See, and you start thinking, how do I respond to him? What does he deserve? But secondly, they also make a promise for the future. They make a promise for the future. That's incredible to me with all the power Jesus has. 99.9% of his miracles are to restore the hurting. Think of his heart. Are you not amazed that none of Jesus' miracles are in revenge? Because I know it would happen if some of you could do miracles. <laughs> God help your enemies. Jesus never did miracles in revenge. It's amazing to me. And you see his heart. He's going to restore. He's the son of God who's going to restore. And the promise here is not a guaranteed miracle in this life, obviously. Hey, pray. Can God do amazing things? Do sometimes we get better? Are miracles possible today? Yes, yes, and yes. But is this a promise that you're going to get one as you see it and as you need it? No, not in this life. Is it a promise that you will receive the ultimate miracle one day? Yes, you're going to rise from the dead. You're going to be healed. Body, soul, mind, emotions, relationally, he's going to restore you. But there's something that, G that needs to happen first. Before Jesus can bring the final restoration, there's something that needs to happen first. Remember Jesus' prayer up on the mountain? You think it wasn't tempting for him to just take those 20,000 people and be the king? Go ahead and lead the revolt. You don't think that was tempting? Skip suffering? Go for power and glory and fame? That was one of Satan's suffering to Christ in the wilderness. I'll give you the kingdom. But Jesus knows what he's called to do, and we saw it in that first prayer. He wasn't called to come first as a political king. He's, he's coming as a king who's going to die for the sins of his people. Mark 10, 33. See? We are going to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. <laughs> you should be blown away that Jesus knows this and that he still goes to Jerusalem. I mean, sometimes if you know you're going to get your teeth pulled, you don't want to go anywhere near the orthodontist. <laughs> um, you're avoiding pain. 
And Jesus knows that just the, the worst of the worst awaits him. And it's like it says in Luke, he sets his face towards Jerusalem. When all the crowds wanted to force him into being a king of their own making, he rejected it. He got away. He prayed because he knew what they really needed. It wasn't a new earthly kingdom right now. It was the salvation of their souls from hell. It was him taking their place on the cross because they'll flog him and kill him, and after three days he will rise. Verse 45, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and do what? Give his life as a ransom for many. What's a ransom? He's purchasing you for himself. He's purchasing you out of sin and judgment that you deserve. He's purchasing you out of alienation from God. He's purchasing you out of rebellion and slavery to disobedience. He's purchasing you for himself. He did that on the cross. He took our place so that through repentance and faith in him, we can see him for who he is, so that we can be forgiven and have fellowship with him and the Father and the Spirit as children of God, so that we could have the security of trusting he's with us now in the boat, we don't need to be afraid so that we can live for him in this world as we can and so that we can enjoy him together forever in the new creation. A domesticated Jesus can't do any of those things for you. But the son of God can. He did, he will. Let's trust ourselves to him. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this amazing picture of Christ. And we pray that the same lesson you taught to the minds and hearts of the apostles you would teach to us, and that our view and our expanse of Jesus would explode and grow and be greater. We would see him as the eternal son of God, so powerful, so glorious, so majestic, that we would humble ourselves before him, that we would lay aside our, our little ways we want to control him or or push him to serve our own agendas or expectations, but rather that as we come to him in faith, we would be filled with this deep security that the Son of God knows us and loves us and he's with us, that his life was for ours, that because of him, we're right with you, that his death was for us, because of him, we are forgiven, that he reigns right now, he's alive, he rose from the dead, he's in control no matter what our circumstances are like, and that one day he's going to return in power and in glory. And we will experience all the restoration he has for us in infinite fullness forever. We thank you for these great promises. We pray them in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. And we invite you to visit us Sunday mornings here at Fountain of Life Fellowship. For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com.